Okay, part two. I told Brian I probably actually needed a compressor on this thing because I didn't realize it was going to get so intense, last one. thought I was going to be able to talk about that stuff really quietly, but I wasn't. I don't know, I haven't listened, probably. Okay, so the title, of course, is Count It All Joy, which we all know where that comes from, right, in James 1's. But it's uh, real rhetorical to us at this point. Well, we're, so, um, so a couple things. One, this this is aimed to begin to make the issue of suffering more practical and more real to us, of how we actually, because like I said, taking up your crossbeam doesn't just mean when you're hanging on the cross. It actually means the life you lead as you have the cross in mind and you're walking that direction. So, um, this is this session is aimed at just making it a little bit more practical. And then it's going to end with just some practical suggestions of, that we can implement into life that, um, that will be helpful. Because you, there'll still be a lot of questions when I'm done. Because even two sessions just doesn't really do it justice. Because we're so far from this message. We're so far from it. And um, the other thing is that at the end... If, if I do well, then we'll have a, a short Q&A time. Because there's, I'm sure there's going to be questions, but hopefully I answer some of the practical questions in a second, um, towards the end. But okay, now and then. Uh, paragraph A, top of the page. Last session we talked about the time of trouble that's coming on the earth. We talked about the cross. And now Jesus prefaced discipleship with the revelation of the cross. We also talked about the doctrine of Satan, which is always working to undermine the cross and the call to true discipleship. And in a nutshell, you guys remember remember that phrase? It'll help you learn to acknowledge and to reject that doctrine. The doctrine in a nutshell is glory without suffering. It's resurrection without the cross. That is the doctrine of the devil. <clears throat> Paragraph B. This may have been new information for some of you, while others have looked at the passages before, but my point for today is not... What I'm trying to do with this is not give you a sobriety about the end times. You don't need help to get sobriety about the end times. What I'm hoping to do is to give us sobriety about today. Um, Paragraph C. Uh, sometimes we get the idea of the end times that it's still very disconnected from reality and from human experience. So you can be real familiar with the passages and you don't connect it with hu- real human experience and it's not connected to reality. There's a strong idealism regarding how we place ourselves in the end time scenario. There's a big disconnect with the way we see the events unfolding then and the way we see our lives playing out this afternoon. And it's just not rooted in logic. If we think it through. Um, paragraph D. In other words, sometimes when we see the scenario unfolding, we imagine ourselves being persecuted or in some manner of intense distress. And having our hearts fully steadfast and loyal to Jesus... And that's great to have that vision for yourself. You want to have that vision for yourself, but it must be rooted in reality and therefore inspire action on my part today. It can't just be like when I'm a little boy and I want to be a professional basketball player, but I hate practice. I just, and but I daydream all day long of how I'm going to be a professional basketball player. We have to get beyond that in regards to the end times to a realism about it. And it, because it's really a human experience. The question should arise in your heart. If I'm not steadfast and loyal to Jesus today when I'm mistreated a little, then why should I believe that I would be in that day when I'm mistreated much more? It is illogical. The predominant paradigm within the Protestant church in the West is a strong dichotomy between the present age and the end times. So, 
The end times are marked by darkness, great tribulation, and suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus. But this age should be marked by ease, comfort, popularity, and recognition for the church. Right? Or, it's viewed as the bookends to church history. Church history begins with suffering and persecution, and ends with suffering and persecution. Everything in the middle should be peaches and cream. It really is the way it works logically. Paragraph F. There is not coming a day when the end times are still future at 3.15 and somehow by 3.16 we have entered into them. You guys realize that? It's not coming a day when it's like, we just entered the end times. (laughs) Do you realize that transition is not going to happen? It's this, we have this idealism, but the idealism that we have of ourselves has created this dichotomy in our understanding of such a it's like everything horrible is then but it's just going to begin one day and in that day I'll be okay with suffering and if somebody wants to you know put a gun to my head then this is extreme put a gun to my head and say deny Jesus of course I'll be faithful to Jesus then but there's a dichotomy in that day and today When someone messes with my stuff, I can't live with myself unless I get even. So we're going to try to make it a little practical. We're going to try to flesh it out. A, so that suffering is sober and it's, and it's, uh, well, actually the main reason is so that we don't keep ignoring the issue of suffering. But B, so that we actually have tools to be able to walk it out a little bit. And so it's not as intimidating, it's just sober. Well, anyways, we'll go on. Uh, Top of page two. The view of the Christian life presented from Matthew to Revelation is not easing comfort now, great tribulation then. It's tribulation now, great tribulation then. The Bible portrays something so different and foreign to us in regards to suffering. The reason is that there was a dramatic shift in the teaching of the church during the Constantinian shift. Have you guys heard me use that phrase before? The Constantinian shift. It's the mostly used by like uh, Anabaptists and Puritan uh, theologians, but it basically refers to the shift of the mindset of the church when Christianity became legalized by this regime that was just a, you know, a, a generation prior to was murdering them. And so, when that whole shift took place, the theology of this church changed a lot. And so, um, the understanding and teaching of the church regarding suffering persecution for the sake of the gospel became viewed and taught as antiquated and archaic or outdated. It's just like, well, we're past that phase. Augustine wrote, "That's that's not the age that we're in. And it was the predominant view of the church. Like, uh, uh, there's a story about Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas went into the Pope, and the Pope basically encapsulated the understanding that the church had at this time. So Thomas Aquinas went into his office, because he just had access to him, went into the Pope's office, and they were counting these massive amounts of money, gold and silver. And he looked at him, and betraying the fact that he'd fully embraced this mindset that they were now in a different age since Constantine. He says, you see, Thomas, we're not in the age anymore where we have to say silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas answered him, we're also not in the age anymore when we can say take up your bed and walk. (laughs) And he went, okay, okay, good point. Paragraph H, since the troubles arising from outside the church help them, this is a big one, this is a very important point to understand how this kind of changed in our understanding, the troubles arising from outside the church help them better understand the troubles within the church. The understanding of the troubles within the church was perverted because you took away the troubles outside the church, and so it perverted the understanding of troubles within the church, which is what gave rise to the real extreme forms of asceticism and self-flagellating and those things, because it became perverted. Because if suffering 
for the sake of the gospel is outdated and that's not going to happen anymore, then suffering mistreatment makes no sense. And so they stopped understanding on how to bear up in long-suffering with one another, but they couldn't just take the issue of suffering out of the Bible, and so it became perverted. And they began to, not everywhere, but there was extreme forms of asceticism that were birthed, and self-flagellation is you know one of the more extreme ones. But, it, but, you know, but when somebody came to, to question their doctrine and say that they were in error, you know, they wanted to kill them. So it's just not, there's no congruency between the two. The, the teaching and the understanding of trouble and pressure within the church was perverted because of the Constantinian shift. So uh, demystifying the, the subject of suffering. So this is really one of the points of today. I want to demystify it. And this isn't probably the best it's ever been done, but I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, for this reason, we need to take a few minutes and de- de- demystify the issue. Suffering sometimes gets lumped into this realm of obscurity. And sometimes, even with zeal to get it right, we lack the clarity on which really glorify, well, on what really glorifies Jesus. So, we want to imagine that we're, if you're a Christian and you stub your toe, Jesus somehow got glory for that. And that's just not the case. And that's the really zealous ones. And then others just throw it out entirely. We just can't grapple with the issue. So I want to demystify it for that reason. It's helpful to understand that there's a few different kinds of suffering. And they're all really dealt with differently in the Bible. Um, James talked about various kinds of trials and suffering and persecution. He said, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Various kinds. And... um, So I'm going to talk about just a few different kinds. Again, it's not the best way it's ever been broken down, but I think they're helpful. The first area is self-imposed suffering. And that is just the areas of pain that you experience as a result of your own poor choices, sin, immaturity, and lack of wisdom. And this probably um, uh, accounts for the majority of the pain that we experience as humans, but we usually associate it with other things. You know, most of the pain, one of the ones we're going to talk about is relationally. Most of the pain that you experience relationally is you reaping something that you sowed because of your own self-centeredness and because you justify self-centeredness. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that one just a little bit. But uh, paragraph D, we, repo- we respond to this kind of suffering with humility, acknowledging our weakness and crying out to God to help us overcome areas of compromise. Now, acknowledging the fact that we are fully responsible for much of our own pain and disappointment produces the fruit of meekness and long-suffering as we are much more patient with others when we realize our own need for patience. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. It's not a coincidence that those are the first two Beatitudes. Realizing your poverty of spirit actually does and ought to lead you to a place of mourning. It's important that you mourn to God about your condition and don't go into um, you know, self-centered depression, but it will lead you to a place of mourning. Because when you actually acknowledge and look it in the face, I am broken, I am the most self-centered, and I can honestly say, I am the most self-centered person that I know. I know myself much more than anybody else does. <clears throat> Paragraph E, the next category of suffering is circumstantial. And uh, this probably isn't the best way to describe this, but um, I'll give you the idea. It includes mostly sickness and not having enough money for your basic needs. Okay, I'm not putting in there you don't have enough money for the Ferrari. That's not, that doesn't count. That, that, that goes under the first one. <laughs> that you're suffering because of your own immaturity. This area would include mostly sickness and not having enough money for your basic needs. This area of suffering is handled differently than others, biblically. Um, our posture towards sickness and lack of provision is simply one of prayer and contending for breakthrough. You know, uh, real plainly, James 5, pray for one another so that you can be healed. Pray then in this way, give us this day our daily bread. I do want to say in that, that does not mean that between 
the lack and the breakthrough, you cannot glorify Jesus in the midst of it. Because you can. And actually, we ought to. I should have put this in there, but I thought the notes were already too long. But let me just say this. Do you know what happens when you believe the Lord for healing, you're praying, and you believe the Lord for provision, and yet you're still walking in lack, and the unbeliever looks at you, and you still have joy in your heart, even though you don't have the breakthrough? What that tells them subconsciously is that you have something that's of so much value that the the suffering of this age is not worthy to be compared to the glory of that age. And if we don't have that, I mean, you can contend for healing all you want, but it doesn't glorify Jesus if you are in a full-time temper tantrum until you get your way at all. You contend for healing, you contend because he said, I care about providing for your needs. Ask me. So we keep asking and we keep asking. We have lack, but we don't throw a temper tantrum. That doesn't glorify Jesus at all. All that does is it reveals that Jesus isn't the treasure of your heart. If Jesus is the treasure of your heart, the sufferings of this age actually make him look beautiful and glorious to others. And actually it releases the conviction of sin to them. That's what I think that the... uh, the people were, were thinking when they heard Paul and Silas in prison, when they were singing hymns at midnight, middle of the night. They're like, what is the deal? What do these guys know? I mean, I would be singing if God got me out of prison. <laughs> <clears throat> Which they did that too. <clears throat> <clears throat> the next way everyone suffered, suffers is relationally. This example is clear to everyone, and although it's commonly confused with the first area of self-imposed problems because of the way relationships work, it is the one that we all struggle with most, of, most on a daily basis because of the issue of mistreatment. And we want to talk probably most about mistreatment today. The final category is suffering for the gospel. And this is the category that's most spoken of by the apostles. Unfortunately, we think of this area mostly as something that missionaries in Muslim countries experience. But the apostles thought differently. You know, he said to Timothy, you know, read Second Timothy, and he encourages Timothy four times in the book of Timothy. And Timothy was just a little shy about going all the way. And he says, listen, Timothy, Join me in suffering for the gospel. Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel. Timothy, suffer for the sake of Jesus with me. And Paul's about to be killed. Paul's in prison telling him this. And he says, I ran the race, got my crossbeam all the way to the mountain. I'm here, I'm here, Timothy. Come with me, Timothy. And in that, he says this, persecutions and suffering, same, same letter he wrote, Persecutions and suffering such as happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and at Lystra. We're going to go into those in detail. That is just the most unbelievable understanding. It's an exposition of the apostolic heart. When you see what happened to him in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, he's talking about one event. Because they all happened uh, uh, from from men from those three cities. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted, except 21st century Americans who don't have to. Obviously, that's not a disclaimer. And so what is not happening? That's the question we should be asking. James actually brought up these various kinds of suffering to help them make sense of what was happening and what was about to happen. This is the point. This is why suffering doesn't click every moment of every day for us. Being mistreated doesn't click every moment of every day because James puts it in a context. What's he say? Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, there's a lot of shallow teaching about going through rough seasons and things like that. But they're all based in this age should be mostly defined by peace, comfort, ease, and no suffering. But James says this, 
go through these trials well because they produce endurance. Why do you need endurance? When's the last time you needed endurance? During a great day. The point is, you need endurance because you're going to suffer more than you are right now. That's why you need to suffer. Suffer well now. <coughs> Excuse me. You need endurance because what's coming is greater than what you're experiencing right now. And the apostles always put suffering in this context. They always put relational conflicts in this context. Don't be surprised at suffering. First century church always believed that the church would go through the Great Tribulation. In fact, just going to give a plug, there was no other eschatology in the church for 200 years except for what's now called classic or historical premillennialism. And all that is, is it's the belief, it's in the, uh, it's in the footnote, Historical premillennialism is the belief that Jesus will return to reign on the earth for a thousand years immediately following the three and a half year great tribulation period during which the church will be on the earth. There was not, uh, there was no other eschatology really taught until Augustine systematically. And Augustine laid the framework for amillennialism and postmillennialism. You can find out what they are. It means there is no millennium or we are in the millennium right now, and Christ is reigning right now, which redefined right now as if Christ is reigning, there should be no suffering. There should be no problems. If Christ is reigning, then that, should be, that shouldn't be the case. So it, it turned the reign entirely into an ethereal reign. He's not a real human anymore. I can't believe I'm going to go all the way into this, but I think it's important. Okay. He believed in such a dichotomy between the two realms that Christ had actually, and Martin Luther picked up on this, he actually wrote the same thing, that Christ at the ascension shed his physical body because heaven was too holy and too pure to have physical matter in it. And Christ was too pure to have physical matter on his frame. Therefore, Classic premillennialism couldn't be right because that implies that Jesus would have to corrupt himself with a human frame again and touch this wicked, disgusting planet. And so therefore, that can't be the case. So therefore, his reign has to be heavenly because he can't possibly reign on this disgusting earth. Which, if you know where he got the idea, he got the idea from Origen, who was... Basically, just an extended pupil of Plato's, who said the the present realm is wicked, physicality, materiality is wicked, ethereality and non-materiality is holy, and so Origen wrote on that a lot. And then Augustine picked it up, and then Martin Luther picked it up, and then we all bought it, and that's where we live, and so that's why there's question regarding eschatology. Is because we don't believe Jesus is a human. If Jesus is a human, then of course the reign is going to be on, in a human place. But if Jesus isn't a human anymore, then it changes everything. <clears throat> but because that was the framework that they had for eschatology, all of the Christian walk was funneled through the understanding that they would go through the Great Tribulation. And of course, premillennialism the way that it's been known in the last hundred years, or the way that it's been exported because of the money that was put behind it, the dispensationalist premillennialism is only 160 years old. That is not classical premillennialism. Left behind does not go back beyond 160 years. <clears throat> so the early church had a very clear understanding, top of page four, of the apostolic teachings and understood the role of suffering in light of a coming tribulation. The apostles were diligent to keep suffering as a focal point of the early church in light of the coming tribulation. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery deal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not weird. Like, we all get into, like, this time of testing, and we're like, oh my gosh, I must just be in, like, this season where 
bad things are going to happen to me. <laughs> and Peter's going, don't be surprised when that happens to you. <clears throat> it's not a season, or it is a season. <clears throat> Uh, Peter starts off that chapter by saying this. This is the apostolic encouragement. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose. If indeed we suffer with Him, we may be glorified with Him. Paul addressing that demonic doctrine. You can be glorified and have the inheritance without it. You cannot. If we suffer with Him, we will be glorified with Him. And we sent Timothy, our brother. This is awesome. First Thessalonians. He starts off Second Thessalonians talking about it in more detail. That they were just an example to... Oh, I actually put that next. Perfect. They were an example to all the believers. Let's read Second Thessalonians first. He says, um, we speak proudly of you among the churches of God. So they're boasting. They're using them as an example of your perseverance and faith in the midst of persecution and afflictions. Because this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. And then he writes them in uh, 1 Thessalonians and he says, I had to send Timothy, our brother, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by the afflictions. He didn't say to make the afflictions go away. I don't want you guys to be disturbed by them. For you yourselves know, listen to this, we are destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance this was going to happen and so it came to pass. I told you. I told you we were destined for these afflictions. And they're happening. And I know some of you are surprised. But I told you we were destined for these. The apostles understood that their own suffering. This just blows my mind. <clears throat> they understood their own suffering was meant to be an encouragement to the body of Christ. They understood that God was putting them on display as least, right? God was putting us on display as the greatest fools on the planet. On purpose. This is the apostolic heart. I think it's also an example of true leadership in the church to be examples of how to suffer well. It really is what they understood. Listen to what Paul does. <clears throat> this is, remember when he referenced to Timothy? That everybody has to suffer like this who wants to follow Jesus. Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. This is the, this is the reference. <clears throat> Acts 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. He was in Lystra, which is a neighboring city. <clears throat> and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul. Then they dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Do you know why, how, why you did that? When you stone someone... You took rocks the size of about the size of a softball or baseball, up to the size of a softball or larger, and while somebody was on the ground, you plummeted them in the head until their body stopped twitching. And then when you were convinced that there was enough blood and that they were disfigured enough, and after they had stopped moving and probably breathing for long enough, they were probably dead. And so you took them outside of the city and left them there, or you pushed them over a cliff. In this case, they take him outside of the city. Paul's totally dead. He hasn't been breathing for quite a while. He's so disfigured. They plummeted him in the head at fairly close range. They're not in right field trying to, you know, tag the guy out at home plate. That was for Joe. They're at close range, plummeting him in the head with rocks until they're so convinced that he's dead 
that they drag him outside of the city and they leaving him. They left him there. The disciples came and stood around him. I imagine that they were mourning, but who knows? And he got up and walks back into the same city. What? Then Mark came and they went somewhere else and he comes back. But here's here's what I want you to picture. I should have put these references. Um, I heard Alan Hood talk about this, but a lot of scholars actually write about these. Is that from this moment on, there are marks in Paul's ministry of the effects that this had on his body. Yeah, like um, there's a couple letters where he references, um, a couple of his epistles where he references that they can be sure that it's him because of the way he signed his name at the end. Because my letters are large and ugly. And then even though there's been so many good teachings about Paul coming to the Corinthians with contemptible speech, it's not likely that that word is implying that he was like, he was, you know, speaking stupidly. It's implying that there was a disfigurement so badly that he couldn't articulate words. And so they thought he was foolish for it. And then there's the other case when he's taken before the high priest and Paul never did anything disrespectful to the institution because Jesus said don't. He said respect the ones that have Moses' seat. And so Paul goes in and he gets struck and he's before the high priest and he turns and he responds and he says, you're doing that to me now. He basically gives him this day of the Lord reference and a guy says to him, how dare you speak to the high priest that way? And he goes, I'm sorry I didn't know he was the high priest. And the question is, he's close enough that he just hit you. You're a Pharisee of Pharisees. How do you not know? His eyes. That's what we're talking about here. That's what happened to Paul. So his hands are disfigured. He's got contemptible speech. From this point on, he can't articulate words well. His eyesight is poor because they plummeted him in the head with rocks until they thought he was dead. And he goes back into the city. And look at the next part. Verse 21. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. To those three cities. Why? Because Lystra was where he was at when they killed him. When they tried to kill him. When they stoned him. Iconium and Antioch is where the Jews came and tried to kill him from. So he goes to those specific places to encourage them to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying this, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Picture looking at Paul preaching the message in the house church. Through this. And many tribulations. That is actual. And he goes back to them to strengthen them. And he says, through what just happened to me that you guys were looking at, because what happens is, is the apostle knows that when that happens to him, everybody needs an extra dose of courage to go forward. And he understood. That's why he put on display for the Corinthians and for these believers here, the sufferings that he went through. He wasn't saying, well, I made it through this. They can't, they can't stop me. That's not what he was doing. He was encouraging them that they were going to suffer and this was the way you in, that you inherit the kingdom. So that when it came upon them, they wouldn't be shocked like we are. <clears throat> Point four, why suffering? I encourage you, go to Acts 14 and just study that whole passage. It's just remarkable. Look up some of the references to the beatings and how long it would take individuals to recover from things like that if there was the rare case that somebody survived. I mean, it was months and months and months and months before they could get out of bed. You know, Paul had, you know, his lashes. You know, he was beaten 40 times minus one, like five times. Every time, it probably took him over six months before he could get out of bed after those times. So why suffering? This is, this is a question. What is the connection between those things in the future and suffering now? Why, why is there a connection? Why should I put those two together? 
Suffering in all these various forms has the ability to expose hidden fault lines in the heart which otherwise are left alone. These areas being left alone does not mean that they don't touch your life or that they're not there. On the contrary, there are dozens of areas in each one of our lives right now that are perverting your perspective, messing up your relationships, and keeping your hearts at enmity with God and His ways. Dozens right now. And because they're undisturbed and unknown doesn't mean they're there. Doesn't mean they're not there. The end of the day, these areas hidden beneath the surface are what cause us to either stand or fall in times of temptation. Our lives don't function based on what is perceived or understood. They function on what is actual. In reality, we're broken. We're prone to pride and anger, prone to wander from wandering, from falling hard after God, and then prone to redefine running hard after God, so that we don't have to feel bad about it. This is what we're prone to in reality. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know the heart's so deceitful? Who can know what it's like? And there's one answer. Psalm 44 God knows the secrets of men's hearts. God is operating off of what is actual and not off of what is understood by us. That's why we don't understand Him. Because He's not treating Veronica based on who Veronica understands she is. He's treating Veronica based on who she actually is. The Lord not only knows our hearts perfectly... But he knows that there are two great events coming on the human race. One of them is just kind of uh, recapping. First, he knows that there's coming a day when the most tremendous pressure that has ever been on the human race will come against the saints from the Lord. And those who turn and collapse into the temptation of that hour will go to the lake of fire forever. He does not want that. And you're not going to change his mind over it. You know, basically, I already read this before, Revelations 14. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Here is the perseverance of the saints. This is what you anchor your perseverance on, is that this day is coming. This is why you need perseverance, saints. He also knows another day is coming called the white throne judgment. Every human who's ever lived will stand before God and He will give an absolute verdict of their lives. The outcome of that day is also eternal. There will not be any negotiating or discussion. Your situation will not be misunderstood. It is not subject to discussion. He doesn't care about your opinion in that moment. It is irrelevant because you don't know and He does. So tell me, What kind of a good God would have that information and then only work with you based on where you think you are? That's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. Given the severity of these events, our Father is not willing to let us remain undisturbed now. He's designed us in such a way that if we are disturbed by something as common as our spouse hurting our feelings... If we agree with the grace of God, He can actually deal with the areas of weakness and pride that leave us vulnerable to compromise. That is unbelievable that He made us that way. I mean, we're so integrated that that's why... Do I I have this here? If not, I want to bring it up. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said that you're guilty for the court if you kill your brother. He goes, I tell you, if you're angry with them, you're already guilty. And it's like, why? The point is, is that Jesus is going, because murder is already ministering in your heart. It's the same thing. I, I, I think of the illustration this way. Jesus, what Jesus is saying, and this is how all suffering works. If I push Peggy's button 2%, 
If I push it 2%, if I push it that hard, and Peggy's response is anger, and she responds and defends herself because of that 2%, puts me in my place, what Jesus is saying is in the day when somebody does 80%, Peggy will kill them because of that same issue. It all depends on how much pressure is on you. But there's coming a day when the pressure is so great, what are we going to do? And so, he sends suffering now. Isn't that so good that he would do that? I'm serious. I'm not trying to be facetious. I mean, that is so kind. We usually surround ourselves with people and activities that strengthen the delusion of who we are at our core. We would all love to believe that what we are like inside is what we see when all of our circumstances are favorable, which is an idea that we get from humanism, by the way. It's actually a doctrine within humanism. But in reality, we seldom get a good look at our inward condition. Only when the comforts and inner scaffolding that keep us propped up are momentarily brought down do we get a glimpse of reality. Again, we have to get acquainted with reality if we're going to deal in reality. In discipline, God treats us as sons. This is the easiest way to understand it, in my opinion. He's treating you as a son, is what Hebrews 12 says. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son. Who God does it. It's not just He's allowing negative things to happen. God scourges His children. Don't take, because it's, it's the act of a loving father, don't make it mother nature. Don't just make it fallen humanity all the time because it's actually the act of a loving father. And if you don't understand that, you're actually not able to walk in a revelation of the father's love accurately. You don't know the father's love unless you understand that he is the one scourging you often. Look what it says. It says, God deals with you as sons. This is really simple. You know, Asher doesn't know at 7 what I know at 34. It's very simple. Asher doesn't understand if he runs out in the middle of the street on a highway that there are Mack trucks that go by. And so Asher doesn't understand this. So Asher puts one foot on the highway and gets a spanking on his bum and is so offended. Why would you do that? Why would you hit your son? And that's how we are. Like, all I did was, why would you do that? Why would you publicly humiliate me? What kind of a father? And yet, if I'm consistent, and next time Asher does it, I do it again. Next time I do it, I do it again. Do you know what? The day's going to come when that Mack truck is going by, and Asher's standing there, and he's going to go, I shouldn't go on this highway because of a good father who is not operating on what he understood but on what is actual. Joy and suffering. Paragraph A, when we look at the New Testament church, we have to acknowledge a very different value system being in place if not an entirely different message. This is middle of page 6. Joy and suffering were almost always presented as being at work at the same time. Just a few passages. I just threw, threw a few. There's more. I actually thought of, thought of many more that I didn't put down. So they flogged the apostles, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they went out from their presence rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They flogged them. Then the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. They laid many stripes on them and threw them in prison. And at midnight they were singing hymns. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Look at this. This is awesome. You go, well, those are the apostles. That's different. (laughs) 
Hebrews 10, listen to this. Remember the former days, top of page 7, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches, tribulation, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. You joyfully accepted people taking all your stuff away. And you know, if you read chapter 11 of Hebrews, what he's doing is he's encouraging them to stay in that same mindset. To be faithful to the end. And then in chapter 12, when he talks about discipline, he's just explaining it to them. So, chapter 11, he's reminding them how they stood firm at at the beginning. He's giving them an encouragement with the saints of old to keep being steady. And then in chapter 12, he's just explaining to them God's activity in the midst of it. He's treating you as children. He's treating you as a son. You joyfully accepted. You regular people, not super apostles, you regular people joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. They clearly knew something that either we do not know or something that we're not willing to consider. Perhaps in the preservation of our own way of life, we've not entered into the joy that they felt. Paul experienced the power and the presence of Jesus on his heart as he suffered. Philippians 3 says that I might know Him in the power of His resurrection and I actually want to have fellowship with Him as I'm suffering. Who knows the Brother Leo story? I didn't write it out. Brother Leo, it's a famous, um, uh, not Thomas Aquinas, but uh, uh, St. Francis of Assisi story. Just Google Brother Leo and you can have the whole story. He says, I first heard Alan Hood talking about it, but I read it several times since then. But he says, um, uh, 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 who was it again? St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis of Assisi. They were going to visit him and some of the younger monks from the monastery were going to visit another monastery. And it was a full day's walk. And um, he pulls one, he starts to walk next to one of them named Brother Leo. He says, Brother Leo, And he says, yeah. He goes, do you know what true joy is, Brother Leo? Have you experienced it yet? And he goes, I don't know. I don't know what it is. He said, said, Brother Leo, if you had a gift of evangelism and anointed preaching that you could lead the whole world to the Lord, that would not be true joy, Brother Leo. He says, okay. He says, if you had gift of prophecy. And you could understand all the mysteries of the universe. That would not be true joy, Brother Leo. He said, if you could end world hunger by yourself, if he gave you creativity. Of course, he's not saying these things are bad. He's just putting them in perspective. And he says, if you could end world hunger, if you could... Feed all of the poor and make it to where they're going to have food tomorrow too. Brother Leo, that would still not be true joy. He says, okay, then tell me already, what is true joy? Why are you doing this? He says, let me tell you. He goes, if we walk all day and we get to this other monastery in this neighboring city and we get there and we knock on the door of the monastery and the gatekeeper comes to us and he says, and we say, we're... We've come from this other city, from a monastery there. We've come to encourage you. And he says, no, you're not. You're those thieves I've heard about are roaming around our region trying to deceive people and steal their stuff. Get out of here before I call the police. And so they close the door and they knock on the door and they plead with them for hours until it starts to get dark. And they go, oh my goodness. And it starts to rain. And he goes, and so we run around the town finding if there's anyone pious and devout that will just let a few of God's servants stay at their home. 
because we don't have anywhere to go. And everyone denies us stay. And so we go back and we plead with the man, no longer as brothers in Christ, just saying, for the sake of being merciful, would you just give us as two strangers a bunk to stay in for the night and then we'll head back tomorrow. And he gets angry, still thinking they're the thieves. And he comes out, Brother Leo, and he beats us. And he leaves us lying there, cold, wet, in the mud. He goes, and Brother Leo, if in that place you didn't have any anger in your heart, that would be true joy. And he's right. That really is it. God is so merciful to us that He will actually take the church through a period of testing prior to it coming upon the world so that we can get it. We are not supposed to be shaken like the world in the day of calamity, but we have to learn this first. The Lord will discipline His children to prepare them to be a sanctuary in the days that are coming. There will be cities of refuge, places of supernatural provision and shelter, but the church must undergo a fresh baptism so that we can be effective in that hour. The church will learn and live the message of the cross before we actually get to that time. Peter said, it's time for judgment to begin in the household of the Lord. The reason he said that is because he knew the time of calamity was coming and there had to be a people that were standing firm for the sake of a harvest during that time. And he knew they weren't ready. How much more are we not ready? How to grow from suffering and mistreatment. This is just this little practical element and then we can have a little Q&A time. A short one. It says, how to grow from suffering and mistreatment. You may have noticed that suffering and mistreatment are not magic. You may have noticed that in your life. St. Augustine said, the same miseries send some to heaven. This is not on there. Same miseries send some to heaven and some to hell. Suffering is not magic. We actually, you don't automatically get hurt and grow in holiness, meekness, or any other virtue. You need the grace of God to grow in wisdom and discernment so that we don't continue to meander through life wasting those moments that were meant for our blessing. Don't waste your trials and your mistreatment. They're meant for your blessing. It's not like that person can really thwart God's plan for your life or even for your afternoon anyways. He really can't. Like, we are so concerned that everything's going to get messed up if I just allow myself to be mistreated. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I hear that some of you are like taking each other to court. He goes, what on earth? He goes, you guys are going to judge angels. And then Paul's conclusion to the whole passage is, "Um, why won't you just let some guy take your stuff? What's the point? He goes, you guys are actually going to do all that when you're going to judge angels if you're counted worthy? He said, just suffer. Just let them take your stuff. Here are a few practical things that we can do to purpose our hearts to grow in this area. Um, There's more than this, but these are a few that have been helpful to me as I at least, you know, set my compass to this several years ago. Number one, pray for wisdom. You guys all know that passage in James 1.5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. What's the context of that? Count it all joy when you're suffering. The reason he says ask for wisdom, read the passage, I encourage you, James 1, 1 through 5 is the reason he says ask for wisdom is he goes, if you don't understand the role of suffering and mistreatment in your life, you need wisdom. Ask God to give you wisdom so that when you're walking through life and somebody mistreats you, you actually go, oh, I get it. I get it. Rather than always being angry about it. 
Discernment from God will help you understand how you can respond in authentic humility while giving the Holy Spirit access to heal broken areas of your life. Wisdom just makes it practical. If He gives you real wisdom, because understanding will give you understanding generally, wisdom actually gives you understanding in the moment. Because it's, it's one thing, honestly, um, it's one thing to, it's a good first step that when you someone mistreats you and you lash out in anger, it's a good first step to go, let's jump down to number five on the next page. It's a good first step to go back and apologize. That's not enough. Because the problem is, is that the way you use your mouth actually leads where your heart's going to naturally gravitate towards next time. <clears throat> All of these, honestly, I'm not doing them justice. Each one of them should actually be its own teaching. And I'm actually going to spend the next several all-staff meetings teaching on these practical issues. So no intense in times for a while. Just for Maggie. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, practicing silence when you feel the surge of anger come up. This wisdom will give you the ability to do that. Um, many believers are stuck in a cycle of lashing out in anger followed by strengthening a stronghold of pride and anger which results in it being more difficult the next time. Some have a value system of meekness and immediate forgiveness of their enemies but it never seems to make it into their lives because they do not control their tongues in the middle of an argument if they feel hurt. Look at what James says, James 3.6. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles. And it sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So the way you use your tongue actually steers your heart like the rudder of a ship for next time. At the same time, if you ask for wisdom and the Lord gives you grace... And you restrain. I said I'm going down to point five. Yeah. And if you restrain for the sake of meekness, the surge comes up. You all know the surge, right? It starts right here and it comes up almost uncontrollably somewhere around your esophagus. You make the decision. And out across the lips. And it comes up and it comes out and you just can't resist. And sometimes it's Big outbursts of anger, and sometimes it's the subtle, passive-aggressive ones. And it's the same issue. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm not talking about somebody's going to hold you accountable. I'm saying, have a vision for yourself. <laughs> I'm saying, hold yourself accountable. But your tongue, the way you use your tongue when you're mistreated today, actually determines how you're going to act. It doesn't entirely determine... It determines how much of a stronghold you have to overcome next time you're mistreated. Does that make sense? Because it strengthens that stronghold. <clears throat> uh, let's go back up to number two. Meditate on the life of Jesus. Now, reading and praying about and studying the life of Jesus is the primary means of receiving grace to walk in meekness. Every word written about his life is a testimony to the power of forgiving love and meekness when you are mistreated. He was perfected, which in context he was prepared to overcome by going to the cross by these moments of suffering. Looking at those times, is, those are what really um, enable us. Because he was perfected through sufferings, as are we. <clears throat> serving serving others is one of the primary tools Jesus gave us to cultivate a heart that considers others before protecting ourselves and our stuff if you need to work on that area which means if you're inhaling oxygen right now then when we make ourselves use our time to serve someone else instead of on the things that make us feel more secure about life then the difficulties that arise cause us to deal with our self-centered nature and to receive patience and healing from the Lord. Because 
You know, there's not coming a time when you just have your calendar so free that you're going to just willingly lay your life down for other people and serve them. It's not coming. That day's not coming. It's not like your list is going away that you have to get to that makes serving people more practical. It's always going to be at the expense of your list. And Jesus had that in mind. That was the whole point. Not that serving is magical. Like I said, none of this is magic. It's that it causes that surge to come up when you and you have to deal with your self-centeredness. You have to deal with, oh my gosh, I don't love Mags as much as I love myself. Holy cow. So what am I going to do when it's time to lay my life down for Mags? I'm not going to do it. You have to deal with it. It makes you deal with it. So as you serve at the expense of your agenda, it causes those things to arise You ask Jesus for mercy and he actually visits you with the Holy Spirit and he heals you. Number four, never justifying your carnal response to mistreatment. This is a good first step. Never justifying your carnal response. Never allow your heart to justify responding carnally to mistreatment. If you allow it, your heart will deceive you in a moment and you will believe that you are justified in retaliating evil for evil. Though you fall short often, always have it as your goal to love those who hate you and mistreat you in practical ways, including your response to them. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That word love is not just like loving from afar. That word love is an active, do things for them, serve them. Like the guy that makes you walk a mile with him. I don't like to be around those people. <laughs> the guys that make you. You know those aggressive personalities. I don't like to be around those people. And Jesus said, when they make you, go another mile. Why? It's not so that we can be good boys and girls. It's because He wants to bring these things up to keep us safe in the time of ultimate temptation. Be wise. Don't waste your trials. Went to practice silence. And last one, regular fasting. If you get a vision for this, and you actually get a vision for desiring to know what's working in your inward parts for real, fast regularly, as opposed to long extended fast once or twice a year. Fast once or twice a week. Start with once. If you do that, you will regularly find at least little glimpses of what's going on, on the inside. You guys ever read Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster, classic? You know, he's got that story. And it's my story too. Because I did the same exact thing that Richard did. <clears throat> Started fasting. And for a while, I actually told my wife, just like Richard told his wife, you just have to get used to it. I'm pressing into God. I'm going to be grouchy on this day. I'll work on it, but that's you just got to deal with it. I'm just pressing into the Lord. And Richard said this to his wife, just like I said this to my wife. And, um, and then one day, Richard's praying and the Lord says to him, Richard, you're not angry and grouchy because you're fasting. You're angry and grouchy because there's murder in your heart. And fasting just enables you to feel it. Normally, it's all covered up. Fasting regularly. But the thing is, is you have to get a vision for being acquainted with reality. Because there really is a day coming when it matters. So, learning how to deal with mistreatment and learning how to value what's actual, it will make sense of the discipline of a good father. It will actually enable you to enter into the joy that the apostles felt as they suffered mistreatment from others. But we have to get a vision for it first, or we'll still always think this stuff is just crazy. You have to get a vision for yourself, being steadfast in a time of calamity, being a shelter for people that need it. If you don't have that vision for yourself, then you'll be the one that needs to find a shelter in that day. It's just the reality.
So, amen. We made it through. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need so much help. We need help to believe this. We need help to believe it again tomorrow. Lord, we need help, a lot of help. But this is why you came. Lord, and so we want to uh, we want to look at the cross differently now. We want to look at the glory of the cross that you put the way for us to be safe in that hour. You put it on display for us. You weren't doing it for us so that we didn't have to go to the cross. So we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the information, the call of true discipleship. And we ask you that you would send the Holy Spirit to us to strengthen us and really enable us to walk in the way that you walk so that we could have a great inheritance and a glorious resurrection like you did. Thank you, Holy Spirit. I ask you right now that you would minister to us. Holy Spirit, I ask you to bear witness of the cross. Guys, the Holy Spirit loves the message of the cross. He loves to bear witness of the cross. Holy Spirit, we ask you that you would take individually and corporately this all of this brokenness, all of the pride and arrogance and the wickedness that we that we hold on to by our lifestyle. That you would give us grace just as broken, human, American Christians. And you'd give even us the grace to be perfected. That you'd give even us the, the grace and the ability to live holy. Father, we need your help. 